0: Welcome to Brain and a Today we have um, Tom Ngia who is based at the University of Cape Town, but is currently on sabbatical at Oxford. Um, Tom's interests are in moral philosophy, and we're going to be talking about evil today. Uh, Tom, would you like to start with the thought experiment?
1: A ring uh, is available to somebody which makes them invisible. Uh and if you put this ring on nobody can see you and you can effectively therefore do anything you please because nobody can catch you and the thought experiment's very simple but quite profound which is what would you do if you were given such a ring the person in the dialogue um, or the, the narrative that's reported in the dialogue decides to do all kinds of nefarious things, like sleep with the wife of the king, steal various things, and then make off with the booty. So he um, takes it that the ring allows impunity, kind of uh, at least no consequences for one's action, uh, and therefore sets him at liberty to, uh, to do what he feels like. So it's, it's a very sharp thought experiment which highlights to what degree we do the right thing because otherwise we'd be punished, and to what degree do we do the right thing because it's the right thing.
2: So, Tom, what's the answer? So, 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 <laughs> so, so is, is, is evil part of our nature, or is it something that, uh, and, and that we need some kind of external force to stop us from enacting? Is it some mm. kind of original original sin part of us uh, or is it uh, is it something else
1: yeah well if I had the answer to that I'd be quite rich uh, <laughs> I, I think you' are definitely asking a pertinent question that's what, the one we all have to think about um, I think one thing to say is that um, as children as um, uh, certainly as infants we tend to only do the right thing in virtue of certain incentives and certain uh, rewards and punishments. Um, that's how we're trained, as it were, morally at the outset. Um, and what the Ring of Gyges is suggesting uh, is that we're all still at heart like moral infants. As soon as the punishments are lifted, we do. Uh, what we feel like. To what degree do we always have to contend with an underlying moral child in us? To what degree do we ever fully overcome that kind of attitude to moral action? Uh, uh, My view would be that it's a struggle. Um, It's probably a temptation that remains with us. but to the degree that we're morally mature, we have internal resources uh, that can overcome such inducements, if you like. Uh, but it's always going to be a struggle to one degree or another. We're never fully morally mature.
0: So there's a really striking modern example of the Ring of Gajis, which is the ability to say things online... Um, anonymously. So you slip on the ring, no one knows who you are. And you find yeah. that an, anonymous accounts um, tend to do things that no one would do in polite company. So they're very mm-hmm. abusive. Um, they'll sling insults. They'll, you know, call on someone to have their job taken away from them. Uh, they'll, they will try and destroy someone else um, yes. because they have this, you know, this ring of gaijis this sort of sense of anonymity. Yeah. Um, this so is social no, media
2: yeah. accounts, Mark. This is a uh, Facebook, Twitter, you're talking about.
0: Exactly. So yeah. uh, um, you know, that ability to sort of transact um without consequence because no one will know who's really behind uh, the attack seems mm. to bring out, as you say, that that moral childishness. Um yes. you don't have a uh, a sense of well, I should do what is right for what's right's sake, but I should I should do things. Um, to my own benefit and to my own delights and to the suffering of others, if I can get away with it.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, that, that's uh, very uh, revealing. I hadn't thought of the connection there because I've been very exercised by this, for me, new phenomenon, given I'm so old. Uh, you know, I was around a long time before the internet. And I think that what shocked me in particular is how irresponsible a medium. Social media can be. Um, It encourages a kind of. I mean, I've thought of it as a kind of adolescent mentality, but in fact, it's probably worse than that. It's probably a a deeply infantile mentality um, of acting uh, as one pleases in virtue of the lack of consequence for that action. Um, And I was I was moved a couple of uh well perhaps uh, this time last year to come up with a series of do's and don'ts for behavior on the social media and i wrote out a list one of my recommendations was that you shouldn't um respond to any felt offense or slight on the internet uh before a day had passed
2: (laughs) <laughs> well, that would just, that would just take the wind out of everyone's sails. Yeah, like, well, quite. That's no, if we you know uh, more of it, that be
1: Yeah, exactly, because it it depends on this sort of very uh, quick fire retorts and stuff. And one one somebody said, well, that gives people a free pass to insult, as if we as it were obliged to constantly monitor other people's behaviour. So this is called call out culture, isn't it? Uh, it's very disturbing. There's no such obligation to call people out. Um, But I think it changes behaviours in profoundly worrying ways. I've seen the most, you know, educated, the most um, um, cultured people nominally behave in ways which are, frankly, sort of, uh, uh, you never expect from them. Uh, in conversation or in personal relations they they take on a new personality which i think shows the the gaiji's problem firsthand yeah
2: so is this other personality this alter ego this the personality once you've got the gaiji's ring on or you're anonymous online or relatively anonymous online is that is that our true nature is the, is the thought experiment meant to bring out who we really are underneath? Or, or is there a different way of looking at it, that perhaps that's not who we really are, perhaps who we really are is once we do have um, our real face on, at least our face that everyone can see, um, and we take the ring off, is that who yeah. we really are? You're asking
1: a metaphysical question about human nature, which is, I think, one of the most difficult to answer. So the biblical account of man's fall. It's a very ambiguous tale, uh, but what I think has great riches. One one reading of that is that we're all profoundly sinful um, and that we sort of, in some sense, inherit an indelible tendency to misbehavior. Um, and that's the most profound thing you could say about us that we're um, at root evil and that's um, our default. Uh, I actually think that's a misreading of the Genesis story. I think the actual significance of that story is that at root we seek the good and we want to do the good but there is some terrible flaw uh which is conveyed by the eating of the apple etc um which intervenes and as if you like as it were mars or blemishes our nature um and it's that wounded aspect of us as it's sometimes called uh the wound of original sin which um betrays our true nature and um gets in the way of what we truly desire uh, Truly seek, so it's it's a nuanced view. uh, uh, I think Uh, it's neither with basically evil or basically good. Um, It's rather that we're a strange concoction, Uh, perhaps with one uh, taking precedence in some sense. But nonetheless, there's a dialectic between the two, and we're always at odds with that um, temptation do the wrong
0: thing i think what's interesting is you, you point out that we've got these two different urges inside of us yeah um and that our setting might play a role in what comes out and so you know being anonymous or you know being invisible uh makes it so much easier for that that uh evil instinct to come out um you know in, in uh, orthodox Judaism, they refer to it as the Yetzirah, the the evil inclination um yes And, uh, you know, you've kind of got that sitting on your shoulder here and you've got the good inclination here. Um, And uh, your your response is interesting on on social media, which is one of saying, well, I'm going to take time out to reflect, which seems to draw on a kind of particular virtue, let's say, of of patience. Um, And Mm -hmm. I wonder, in other words, you describe this as a set of rules, but maybe it's not a set of rules. It's a set of character traits. Um,
1: Mm -hmm. Unlike someone like Cantor, Uh, various modern philosophers the virtues don't give you blueprints for action what they give is a set of um, dispositions which should be brought to bear on any context of action Um, so that there's no algorithm there's no um, decision procedure for action there's just a set of considerations if you like Uh, what would the virtuous person do I'm sympathetic to it. I also think that it's compatible with uh, certain rules or laws of action. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, So, for instance, someone like Aristotle and even Aquinas in the medieval period thought that there were certain hard and fast moral rules of action, certain do's and don'ts. And the virtues helped us to. Um, discern when those rules should be applied and and which rules were relevant to a particular situation yeah so it's I in my view that it's wrong to view virtue as a as an exclusive guide to the moral life it's it's a part of the mix
2: very helpful part yeah so I wonder I wonder whether um, evil should be seen as something I mean, originally you talked about it as intrinsic to us, um, and and you kind of talked about it as if it's at least on some accounts as if it's sort of our base state. So on certain accounts, it would be you talked about like um, moral infancy or moral being the moral child in us, or or yeah. as as Mark said, the the Yetzirah, which is the, the Jewish conception of evil as sitting on your shoulder. Right. Um, a, a lot the of evil uh, angel. Well, they, yeah, the yeah, devil yeah. on your shoulder, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that that's part of us and in us. Um, and then you and Mark have discussed this this um, virtue and vice account. So evil would be an absence of virtues or a presence of vices maybe, um, which would be part of your character. Um, but as the resident utilitarian, I, I have kind of a different uh, intuition about evil. Um, which might not be coherent. So um, you need to, to correct me here. But the, the, the intuition I have is that evil isn't something you are, it's something you do. So it, it, it's based in actions. So the idea wouldn't be that, that you are evil, but your actions are evil. And if you accrue enough evil actions, well, then perhaps you have a negative utility value. But only when we say that, that you have a negative utility value or you produce more. Uh, suffering than good in the world or happiness in the world, um, what we really mean is you are doing bad things, but not that you are bad. And as a utilitarian, I, I would lean towards that kind of conception.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, insofar as utilitarianism, con- consequentialism has pr- focused on action uh, and the consequences of action, I think that that's right uh, as, as an account. Um, but it, of course, there are other versions of utilitarianism, I think, which say that character is a feature of the utilitarian calculus. Right? So, as it were, you should be expanding your uh, view to include, as it were, sort of character, because it matters, as it were, what the consequences for your character are, too. And <laughs> that, to me, that's quite plausible. Because to deny that character exists or that it, it has any uh intrinsic value seems to me implausible. Um it goes against what Aristotle would call the moral phenomena, because we tend to take people's character quite seriously. Um but I also concede to the utilitarian, perhaps you, um, that the Action is central in in the moral life in many ways. It's that which joins us up, as it were, to other people. It's that which affects other people. Um, And someone like Aristotle is very clear that we only um, generate our character, that is, our traits, through action. If we didn't act, then we wouldn't develop a character. So he says, famously, that um we develop like um traits through like actions so if you want to become courageous the only way to do it is by doing courageous things you're not going to as it were magically develop a certain character without acting so i think that's very profound
0: so aristotle's account of virtue is that a virtue sits in the mean between the two vices so on courage he says you know it's between foolhardiness on the one hand and cowardice on the other and he thinks that if you have the one vice, if you are a coward, you know, you can stray more into the foolhardy territory to kind of push yourself along this line. Now, often moral philosophers are very interested in virtues and, you know, trying to work out what, what should one do to be, um, to be good, you know, to be virtuous. But today we're talking about evil. So can we talk a bit about some of those vices? What are the, the key vices? Um, if someone wanted to be the next Dr. Evil, you know, what would they do to, to become very evil?
2: Mark wants the how-to guide. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, the Bluffer's Guide to Vice.
1: Good. Yeah. Um, good question. And it, it's, a, it's a telling question because the, the inquiry in this area almost always takes virtue as primary. So we talk about the cardinal virtues. We don't talk about the cardinal vices. So, in some sense, most moral philosophers take the virtues to be the starting point, and vices to be uh, a derogation from virtue, a lack of virtue, um, as opposed to um, something positive in its own right. Uh, that, that's that's a long-standing view. The trouble is with that view is that um, the effects of vice seem to be very real and to be almost more they impinge more on our consciousness often than the effects of virtue um people uh, remember bad stuff more than they remember good stuff often so uh i think there's a there's a problem there for the traditional view as to what the main vices are um aristotle would probably say um a lack of wisdom. So one of the worst things is to have not been given the wherewithal to make moral judgment, to grow up in an environment where vice becomes inevitable because one hasn't been introduced to the materials of virtue, if you like. Um, so if you think about, for instance, the famous cases of Uh, children killing other children Um, and that shocks people to the core i seem that the most they often say the most evil uh thing you could imagine um killing a child but um certainly if that's done by other children it's often not a mark of vice it's a mark of um ignorance um and
2: uh they're probably less far less to blame than we think so you think that ignorance is kind of the core vice it's the vice from which others stem
1: socrates thought that all vice reduced to ignorance and all virtue reduced to knowledge um when, when i characterized Aristotle earlier on, it was slightly misleading. He, he, he takes it that Socrates was uh, on the right track, but didn't quite make it. Um, almost for Socrates, vice is um, a form of, um, how should you put it, an intellectually empty state. It's something that we're not grasping. So there's knowledge which would, as it would tell us how to act, and we lack that knowledge, and therefore we're driven by desires and various other um, impulses to do to veer off the right track. It seems to me that um, most people think strong intuition, I think a lot of people have that vice is a bit more substantial than mere ignorance. You have to add in this brew of disposition. Uh, uh, as it were character trait is not reducible just to an intellectually null state Um, it's actually a shaping of our behavior and our character in such a way that we we go wrong in certain ways not that there isn't an intellectual element to that right there is an intellectual element to that but that's not the whole story there's as it were um, a behavioral and a, a dispositional uh, aspect
0: as well so you yeah. gave an example of something that people consider supremely evil um like the killing of an innocent child um and yeah. then part of part of your way around that is to say well it depends who perpetrates it in other words you want to look at um you know how much of an agent the killer is and that helps us assign you know how evil they are um that it might have to do with their capacity or you know their circumstances um the other kind of supreme evil that people think about is where you have someone who pits two innocents against each other. Uh, so there's a, there's a horror movie called Saw. Um, and it starts off with these two have have been abducted and they're in a room. And uh, in order to, escape, the one has to kill the other. I think there's like a key hidden inside of the guy's heart or something, and he has to, you know, cut him open and, and kill him. Yeah. And you find these examples throughout history as well where um you you had uh, the the Kapos in Nazi Germany. So they were Jews whose job it was to round up other Jews. You know, and this idea that you take someone who is um who is themselves innocent and you you corrupt the situation, you corrupt the environment, so that yes. they themselves act in an evil manner.
1: Yes. Right. So that, that's a sort of hell that we've created as adults. Um, indeed. Um, so, I mean, just to, you know, since we live in South Africa, it seems to me that something analogous was true under apartheid, that you divide people, right, and you create incentives such that the situation generates evil action, uh, irrespective of individual's desires. Uh, um, It structurally promotes evil, if you like. Um, In fact, you can be quite (laughs) uh, well-meaning, generous person, if you like, and still tend to evil action in such a situation. Um, That's right. Um, Your example uh the concentration camps seems a, a limiting case of that right there's almost nothing you can do in that situation which will allow you to come out of it morally whole morally clean yeah the, the very the, the very situation you're placed in is uh sullying morally um and and there's a very interesting book recently by lisa Tessman called When Doing the Right Thing is Impossible. I think that's what it's called. And her argument is that there are certain situations, certain contexts of action, which preclude making possible uh, right action. And all you're faced with are various degrees of evil. Yeah.
2: So Mark mentioned the movie Saw. And as someone who loves horror movies and writes horror fiction... Oh, wow. um, I'm very curious what your view is on people reveling in or enjoying books like Stephen King's or horror movies Mm. um, where these evils are happening on screen and our reaction is one of delight Mm. Um, and maybe fear along with the characters, but enjoying that fear and kind of a deliciousness associated with it. I wonder whether that is evil on your view. I mean, it shades into aesthetic theory, doesn't it? Kant has a view on
1: this. Kant has a view on everything. So, I mean, just retell his view, which is that um, he didn't put it so much in terms of good and evil, but of um, the phenomenon of the sublime, where we are in confronted with uh, an event, say, a thunderstorm, which is threatens human life, um, but as long as we are insulated from the storm and we are at a distance from it we can in some sense appreciate it uh, and enjoy it so there's a a, as as it were an important um, aspect here of distance from reality Uh, once that distance is in place we react very differently and i think that must be true to a large extent of horror film If we are actually in the room with a saw guy and he was going for us, we wouldn't be laughing. We we wouldn't be enjoying it at all. I think it's more complex than enjoyment. I think it is, um, as you said, enjoying the fear, partly. And the enjoyment is partly conditioned by the fact that we know it won't have the usual effects. Right. So what we're fearing won't have the usual effects on us, That the objects of fear do. So um, it's partly an enjoyment of safety (laughs) Um, amid amid fearful stimuli, Um, and that obviously um, is not evil as such. Um, What might be evil is an enjoyment of things being done to others, which we wouldn't don't want done to us um, a kind of um, uh, vicarious feeling I suppose um, and that 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 touches on things which are very very uh, deep in our psyche I'm not sure I I've thought very much about that but um, it seems to me that life is so full of um, threats especially as we are experiencing now through disease um, that to see other people getting in the neck rather than us is at one level gratifying because we've escaped the threat Um, and that aspect of us which is um, deeply callous and seeks to save our own skin above all else does find that gratifying, I think.
2: I read a, a short, well, listened actually to an audio book recording of Stephen King's The Bizarre of Bad Dreams, uh, which is a collection of his short stories. And between each story, he gives a discussion himself uh, in his own voice, in his own words, of how that story came to be and on writing horror generally. And he said something, I've been writing horror for years. I'm a sci-fi horror writer. And he said something which totally changed uh, the way I understood horror. And he Uh said, horror is deeply funny. Uh Deeply funny. And I I found that, and he said, it's the humor that we find in watching terrible things happen to people that is horrifying to us. We want to laugh and are horrified by our own reaction. Ah.
1: We're horrified by our own reaction when we laugh. Yeah. Okay. So so it's not just that we find horror funny, but there's a kind of meta reaction. Yeah. Um, Maybe, but I... I have the feeling that that would be peculiar to a certain character. I mean, I don't think I've experienced that. Maybe because I haven't been exposed to enough horror films or stories.
2: Yeah. So, so I, I th- you know, there's certain people that enjoy horror and certain people that don't. You know, uh, it, not everyone likes horror. And I think it might be that the people who enjoy horror find it funny. Hmm. Um, and the people who don't look at it and say, but why would you enjoy this? And I wonder whether that's I wonder whether that says something about who we are as as a species or as humans in terms of kind of some root in us, some so, something in us that that revels. You talked earlier about reveling in the safety of this not happening to us. Yeah, um but but I wonder whether there's something more sinister there as well. Kind of a sadism. Finding something funny,
1: amusing. Is slightly different from finding it gratifying. When I've laughed and the audience has laughed um, next to me, it's because the effects were so badly done. So what was (laughs) actually, um, you know, funny was that you couldn't take it seriously as horror.
2: It was bad horror. That's why it was bad
1: horror. It was badly done. It was badly acted. It was badly staged, etc. Yeah. So the source of the humour was something that was, you know. To one side of what should be happening um, finding horror itself when well done well staged etc funny that that i think is shading into what you just called sadism
0: so, so let's imagine a couple of cases so let's say you have the mother Teresa type who spends their time you know toiling to um, reduce suffering and our mother Teresa herself has a complicated actual history but let's imagine that glorified version of monstrosity. So you're, yeah. you're mopping the brows of the sick, you, you know, you're trying to do as much good in the world as possible. But in your spare time, what you do to sort of fuel yourself is read the most sadistic novels, um, play the most violent video games, um, <laughs> indulge in the most lurid sexual fantasies. Um, now, it'd be interesting to think of, you know, is this person doing anything evil at all? Uh, given that it has, let's say, only positive consequences. So the more they read about, um, you know, pulling people's toenails off, the more it makes them sort of, and, and they delight in it and enjoy it and, you know, kind of imagine themselves doing it. Um, but in yeah. practice, it just fuels them to sort of, you know, heal the sick um, and, and do all these good things in the world. Would we think, think
1: any... That's how it fuels them? How does it encourage them?
0: So it might be that, you know, you could be the kind of person who's psychologically disposed that way. So you might sort of say that, um, you know, whenever you're with the sick, you know, you feel some kind of um, disgust for them. But because you have this fantasy realm where you can imagine punishing them and torturing them, um, that creates empathy in the real world. So nice. so it could be some kind of, kind of case like that. Um, mm. That the more you sort of, it could be like a, that your fantasy world is a steam valve for all of your let's say, your internal vices. So if we think of yourself as this mix, as you set out in the beginning of good and bad, well, you let all the bad out in the fantasy realm, and then the good yeah. can really sort of come out in the, you know, in the real world.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, that, there might be some kind of psychological mechanism like that, in some people at least. Um, so the question is whether that could be justified or...
0: Well, I mean, I want to make, in other words, not a psychological assessment, but a, you know, a, a philosophical assessment, which is to work out, well, uh, if someone is that way or that is how they work, you know, um, should we, sh- should should we, in other words, say, that, well, they're doing the right thing. They should read more and more of the that kind of literature, yeah. and fantasize more and more, because it seems to have these wonderful consequences. Yeah. Um, or do we say? Uh, no, you should you should stop doing that. Even if even if it will have some negative effects in the world, you'll be less kind, less giving in reality, because we think there's something intrinsically wrong with this kind of um, thought.
2: That's a very good question because really it's getting to the heart of the issue I had, which is um, is evil a characteristic of our actions in which case it's fine because the moral saint the mother teresa does the right thing all the time right or is it is it a feature of our character in which case it's a bit of a problem because our character is being filled by these thoughts um or is it a feature just of our thoughts at all um uh, you know not even our character as 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 leads to action but just just our our, our very thoughts our, you know the things in our head if those are problematic does that make us evil and i think it's a very good case because it, mm. it's it's asking you tom to 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 pick out which of these is the feature for evil
1: yeah yeah um well i, I think as in the narrow utilitarian uh, would say that the Whatever it takes to generate the good consequences, that's, that's okay. Uh, but is that really how we think about these things? I think that, say you were being treated by this slightly deranged Mother Teresa figure, uh, who you knew could only treat you well in virtue of this strange uh, psychological, or you know, doing stuff, weird stuff at night before she sees you. Um, <laughs> I'm not so sure you take as kindly to her treatment. Uh, I'm not sure your, your whole view of her and her actions in a way is sullied by that.
0: I'll give you a really good real life case. Yeah. You go to the hospital, you've got Corona and there are two doctors and the one is just the loveliest teddy bear. And he cares about you so much. And he's so empathetic. Um, and he's an average doctor in terms of ability. And the other one is a psychopath. Um, he cares nothing for your well-being whatsoever. He cares only about his reputation. All he wants is to, you know, to be viewed as the best possible doctor. And because of that, he is actually a fantastic doctor. Um, and your likelihood of survival is increased if you go to him, the psychopath. Who do you pick?
1: You said he was an excellent doctor. I, I demur at that description. Uh, I think the upshots of his actions might be good for you. I wouldn't say he's an excellent doctor, though. Um, we wouldn't wish our doctors to be like that, given a choice. If it was a choice between him and no good upshots, then I think we'd choose him. Yeah, but um, uh, that's, that's one thing to say, to, 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 to finesse the description of what a doctor is. But in terms of actual human psychology, right, this depends quite strongly on your hypothesis about him. I don't think that hypothesis would ever really apply Well, there's good
0: data to suggest it. So you find high prevalences of psychopaths among surgeons, for example. Um, And there's a view that the reason why they do it is as I've described. Um, They do it for their self-glorification. They like the, it's it's a hard task to do. Uh, They might even be fascinated by what they're doing, cutting you up, um, having an intimate relation with your body. And because of that, they are really, really good surgeons. Now, I wonder why I've set this up in this way is if you say, okay, look, I I really would prefer it if my doctor were this wonderful human being who was doing it because they care about me and they love me. Um, And maybe they're less technically good. And you want to kind of boil in this idea that, well, a good doctor means having these other character traits like being empathetic and kind. Um, And so all I want to do is say, okay, we've got the character traits and we've got the technical ability how much technical ability are you willing to you know, push down for those nice empathetic character traits? You know, if I tell you, well, look, your chances of dying at the hands of the, uh, the, the lovely teddy bear go up by 10%, do you say, I'll take that deal, that's fine, I want the teddy bear? Or, <laughs> or what if, how, how much do I have to push you before you say, give me the psychopath, I don't care that he despises me, I know <laughs> I'm going to survive at the end of this operation or the end of this corona treatment? Yeah. At least
2: I know I have a better
0: chance. Mm yeah
1: yeah well yeah this approach is one often taken in, in moral theory that it's it's a, it's a typical consequentialist approach where you weigh up factors and say you know measure one and against the other and how ha- and how much are we willing to withstand a deficit along a certain dimension um i i would view things a bit differently i'd say what is it to be a doctor um how do we want to train doctors um um what kind of incentives do we want uh to bring to bear so if a, i mean do you think it's actually uh, well i wouldn't say common but you know not uncommon for doc uh, surgeons to go into surgery trained for years and years and years, just because they have some kind of fascination with cutting people up and want a good reputation. I, think I, I can funny. believe it. I, I can believe it. Uh, I it's logically possible.
2: I can imagine individual cases, right? We can imagine that it's a few people at least. Yeah.
1: Look, I think those kind of cases were realized very clearly, again, in uh, sort of the paradigm of evil, the Nazi case where there were medical experiments done by people who cared nothing about their patients. And the upshots were interesting, perhaps, for medical science. Uh, should, that, that kind of case seems to me to have existed, to have been clear. Uh, but we tend to repudiate that whole episode in history and say that these weren't real doctors and we wouldn't want to train anybody to have those attitudes.
0: Well, there seems to be a, a distinction. So in other words, your Dr. Mengele case, you have someone that is not, they're not aiming to heal the patient. What they're aiming to do is, let's right. say, make scientific discoveries. Um, and they are, they don't care about the patient. So they're happy to torture that person to death. The kind that I'm talking about is someone who says, I don't care about them in and of themselves, but I do care about their survival because it reflects on me. Um, and so they they, they only have a meta care about it. You know, not not for your own sake, um, but because of, you know, excellent doctors are like this. I mean, you find this um, movie, Doctor Strange. um, Doctor Strange is very much like that. Uh, You know, he's a sort of psychopathic character. Doctor Strange, love? No, uh, it's a Marvel movie. Um, Yeah. yeah, played played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who generally plays yeah. those sort of autistic autistic style characters who are you know dedicated to their craft. You know, if you think about him in Holmes, it might not be that he cares so much about solving the case because those people will then be restored to a state of of comfort, and you know uh, he's not he's not motivated by care. He's motivated by the problem solving element. So I mean, you find this the similar trait among lawyers. Um, you know, that some of the best lawyers like solving very hard problems they're not motivated by well i you know i just hope that once this problem is solved people will start feeling better about their lives and you know i'm motivated by a sense of compassion and care they just say it's a really hard problem to solve and you know i delight in doing that um and so they they lack a particular kind of virtue one of care but they have this other trait let's say one of you know we might think of as being vicious so um you know having a great reputation um Uh, And it motivates them to good action. Uh, And I think, again, if you're picking lawyers, you know, you want the guy who's going to win, and you might not care what what his motivations are.
1: It's logically possible, once again. I say it's unlikely to be the case in reality in this regard, that when you're treating a patient, um, you're not just treating a body uh, and interacting with blood vessels, etc. You're actually treating a whole person. So, in, in order to be able to treat that person well, it seems to me that you'd have to have some modicum of psychological acuity and uh, sensitivity, etc. Uh, otherwise, they're going to physically, probably, uh, psychosomatically, not be in the state they should be. Um, if you're going to increase their tension, their blood pressure, etc., etc. So, the, the care aspect is not merely a dispositional fact about the doctor it's also a relational fact about how the patient feels
0: let me make it harder for you so let's assume that you have a fordian style system which we do have in hospitals so let's say you have the person who you know meets the patient and develops a relationship with them like your general practitioner who's you know, lovey-dovey um, and they say, okay, well, you should go to these experts. And, you know, when you get there, the doctor sort of diagnoses you, but they don't really spend much time with you. Typically surgeons don't. And when they see you, you're unconscious because you've gone to the anesthetist first. And when they treat you, they treat you like a machine. So they really do. They have no personal relationship with you. Um, they yeah. don't get to spend time with you um, like your GP would. Um, you are a body on a slab. And, and I gather, if, you know, people that I know who are surgeons, very much think about it in that way they say this is a complicated machine and we want to fix it and they don't do any of the stuff that you imagine from your country doctor who's sort of sewing up your wound and you know getting to know you and being a holistic practitioner they solve problems um and again the question is whether so i think we can have very good practical cases for why we could have this in reality why it might Mm -hmm. be common Um, and the question is the moral question which is is that a problem
2: well, I just, I just wanna get at what, what it is that we're, what is the objection to? So is the question, is it evil to be this kind of a surgeon, this kind of a doctor? Um, or is the question, well, given that it is evil, is it a problem? In other words, should we pref- is evil so unimportant that we should relegate it to, to, to the point where we actually aim for it some of the time?
1: Earlier it was, he's just in it for his reputation. And he doesn't care about the patient at all. To he's tra- treating the patient as a kind of machine that needs to be fixed, right? I mean, that, I would say that that the latter kind of case is suboptimal. It's not the best, but it in many cases it's probably acceptable, um, especially if the patient is anesthetized and has no experience of the doctor, right? Um, but it's it's a slightly different kind of case to the one you were outlining earlier. The trouble is if someone is completely in a job for their own reputation, for their own kudos, that is in the long term unlikely to serve them very well because they're likely to cut corners and they're likely to, um, well, basically do a disservice to the patient if they can get away with it, right? So there will be practical upshots in the long term for that kind of person. There won't be a perfect dovetailing between his, his, uh, his, his ego and their well-being.
0: Yeah, so it seems like the position you have to adopt is one of a, like some kind of probabilistic account to say, well, it seems to be the case that if you adopt the classical virtues, if you're kind and you know, considerate and caring and warm, that overall, you'll probably wind up with better results whereas I, you're inclined to think that the selfish egotists, narcissists probably won't. Um, and then it's just well, an well, improvement. So for, interestingly, the, the, the so-called virtues
1: you listed, none of them are in Aristotle, being warm, considerate, and kind. You won't find any of those on his list. I don't think those are virtues. They're maybe a question of manner. Um, but the virtues are a bit deeper than that. Uh, they, they do involve competence, like courage, um, wisdom, uh, justice so there. i think they they go deeper in uh their upshots for action uh a just doctor a wise doctor uh even a courageous doctor uh,
2: so it's, there's a certain tendentiousness in your description there i think it's a clever response, Tom, because what what Aristotle's doing is um, he's building into the virtues the notion that they will be successful right so so you know if 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 you if marx Marx's objection is saying, well, I can imagine vices that would be tremendously useful um, mm-hmm. and and I guess that would then very much depend on how you define vices um, because yeah. if you de- if you define vices in a way which is um, opposite to the, to the Aristotelian view of, of virtues, then you're going to define vices in such a way that they inevitably lead to failure. Right. Yes. Um, you can kind of see it in his definition of happiness, eudaimonia. Um, it's been a while since I studied Aristotle. So just correct me if I've, I've got Very the wrong cool. word here, but, but eudaimonia, if I remember correctly, is basically this idea that um, happiness is not just a feeling for Aristotle, but it's a, uh, it's a kind of a state of being in the world in a successful way. Um yep. and, and, you know, and all that comes with it, right? So, you know, it's very much linked with his notion of virtue, um, which is going to bring about eudaimonia. Um, and, and you know, the the opposite of the corollary, I don't know if it's the corollary or the opposite, but anyway, it, the, the, on the other hand, you've got vices which are going to bring about something opposite to eudaimonia, some some sense of... of of failing suffering and failing yes
1: that's right he calls it kakodaimonia i think um, that is bad having a bad spirit as opposed to a good one yeah um nice you brought that up because his view of eudaimonia is really the following that eudaimonia being happy or being fulfilled um is really reducible to practicing the virtues so there's nothing over and above that kind of life. Um, so we can actually tell when other people are eudaimone. We just see what kind of life they're living. You don't have to ask them, are you happy? How are you feeling? We can, it's an objective state of being. Um, now, that's different, you see, from Mark, Mark's suggestion of a person who's self-interested. Um, Self-interest, it comes apart quite strongly from eudaimonia because eudaimonia might require you to do things that are very difficult for you. In the most extreme case, they might require self-sacrifice and giving up your own life. For instance, the soldier who's courageous may have to do that. So eudaimonia is not the same as um, egoistic self-interest. Yeah, I just say that by way of clarification, because I think it's an important uh, gap between the way we think about happiness and the way that he would.
0: Yeah. So you raise an interesting case for me, the courageous soldier, and we can think of two kinds. So there's the one that's in World War One. Um, he's in the trench and uh, a mortar um, lands there. And he knows it's going to explode within the next 10 seconds. And there are Or 100 guys there, and he throws himself on top in an act of courage, absorbs the blow and saves the other 99 soldiers. And we think, you know, this is this supreme act of of virtue of courage. Here's the other case, which is the courageous um, Gestapo agent. So he takes every risk possible, puts himself in the line of danger, so that he can find as many Jews possible to send to the concentration camps. So he, again, puts himself in the line of fire. We think it is a real act of courage, but in service of a very evil cause. And so I wonder if when we think about virtue, if it is contingent, in other words, we want certain kinds of people to have certain virtues, but when you add them with other kinds of things, uh, we'd prefer it if that Gestapo agent were a massive coward. Uh, in other words, at the, at the yeah. slightest hint of danger, you know he cowered away and was because of this incredibly unsuccessful at putting Jews into gas chambers.
1: What that brings out is a certain problem of definition, I think. So Aristotle would say, as against certain modern philosophers, that in order to be courageous, you have to have what he calls a noble aim, a, a calon aim, uh, and without that aim. Uh, that's a necessary condition of being courageous, right? So the Gestapo obviously is, from the beginning, ruled out as being courageous because he has systematically the wrong aims. Uh, now, certain modern philosophers have objected to that kind of view. Uh, and they think that, for instance, I think the common example is the courageous thief. So you can have a thief who's very, you know, meticulous and, um, Pushes his um, skills very far and therefore is, by some accounts, courageous, uh, faces danger down, etc., etc., in the pursuit of theft. Uh, But of course, that depends on knocking away one of the necessary conditions that Aristotle puts in place. Um, I prefer the ancient definition. It seems to me that it adds something crucial to what the virtues are.
0: So it sounds sounds very nice on its face. Here's the problem I have, is we're trying to work out what's good. And then you tell me, well, it's when you do good things. So you build in the notion of noble aims. How do I know yeah. what a noble aim is? You then tell me, well, it's the thing that's virtuous. You know? yeah. uh, so you've got to have some separate account of goodness to know, well, what is it, in other words, to be courageous and seek the good and do the noble. I mean, I mean, it's fine. It, it might very well be the case that, Virtue ethics doesn't tell us everything; that we need some other account that it's got to kind of sit with. Um, yes. What's the what's the sort of Aristotelian response?
1: Well, I'm not sure that Aristotle has a very good response. But uh, you've just highlighted why I'm not really a virtue ethicist.
2: Okay. <laughs> you mean we've been hammering you all this time on virtue <laughs> ethics, and you're not even a virtue <laughs> ethicist? Yeah, you know. It's a, <laughs> or you're not a virtue ethicist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes,
1: I've just written a paper, it's funny you mention it, called How Virtue Ethics Misses the Mark. Um, and the point of that paper is that you can't do everything with virtue. Uh, you can't do everything with one thing in moral theory. You've got to have an array of concepts at your disposal. It seems to me that Mark's absolutely right, that virtue per se is not an exhaustive uh, concept when it comes to theory. And um, you do need some other resources for telling you what your proper aims are. Um, And those uh, seem to me uh, to rely on concepts, which virtue as such does not supply. And I think that's absolutely right.
2: So Tom, this is a fascinating discussion and I think we could go on indefinitely, but I have a question I really want to ask before we go. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's a question that um, relates to, uh, what refers to uh, an episode that we recorded recently with Graham Oppie. Um, and um, what we discussed with, with Graham was this notion of the problem of evil. So when, when, when you speak to philosophers about evil, even lay people about evil, they often will immediately in their minds go to the problem of evil. And specifically, it's mm-hmm. an objection to God. It's an objection to the existence of God or an objection to theism, which is the view that God exists in the Judeo-Christian type of of view. And basically the problem goes like this. It goes, well, um, if God existed, there would be no evil in the world. Why? Because God is all good, all knowing, and all powerful. So he would know about the evil because he's all knowing. He would want to do something about it because he's all good. And he would do something to stop that evil from occurring because he's all powerful. Um, but there is evil in the world, and so God doesn't exist. That's, that's no. the argument. But what it relies upon, of course, is some kind of definition of evil. And often in, in those arguments, we just kind of take for granted what evil is um, without really defining it. And I, and I wonder whether this discussion that we've had around what evil is has some impact on this argument from evil exi- against the existence of God. There isn't a problem of
1: evil for the non-theist. That is, if you have no interest, if you don't, if from some other reason you're convinced that God doesn't exist, it seems to me, what is the problem with the existence of evil? So it does, it does presuppose theism, um, and it presupposes a kind of theism. That is the kind that you outline, which supposes that God has a certain character. Could it be that God alone decides what constitutes evil? That that's a view which is often held by divine command theorists and they say that evil is a function of what god commands and nothing else whether he forbids it or commands it um, i think that view for what it's worth it, it is not plausible uh, and it's actually not an orthodox view in, in judaism or christianity or islam uh well i shouldn't say islam i'm not sure about that but certainly Judaism and christianity tends to take the view that there are independent criteria for what constitutes the evil independent uh of god's will but not independent of god that is it's not external to god's creation right that the fact that there are evil things are included within god's creation but he doesn't uh stipulate determined by diktat what those evil things are rather god as it were creates the world um and within that creation there are certain things which are evil Um, and he acknowledges that he doesn't determine that so uh it's complicated but you know and i'm not an expert in philosophy of religion but i would say that divine command theory is not plausible you do need an independent account of what's good and evil
0: Well, Tom, thank you very much. This was a delightful discussion. Um, It's always fun to to revel in evil. (laughs) Um, It's funny to revel in evil.
2: Yeah.